Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Go. Did it again. Uh-oh. It's been a long time. Oh, boy. Vicar Steele, Timothy Steele II. Uh, sorry about that, Vicar. Uh, he brought donuts today and everything. Just, now I really feel bad. Just have to remember, we were golden before. Now we've gone down in yeah, metal that, level. Now we're down to steel. Now we're down to steel. Yeah, he confessed his sin earlier today, but being a good pastor, I'm not going to make that public on the air. So um, uh, now, now he's really nervous. Um, <laughs> we're uh, uh, we're privileged to come together each week, take a look at the upcoming readings. We are looking at the readings according to the one-year series in Lutheran Service Book, LSB, hence proclaiming the one, but even more so. All of God's Word points to the one and only Savior from sin, Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the 23rd Sunday after Trinity. These uh, end of the church year readings are probably not quite as familiar as some of the other readings we get during the year, although we pretty much cover them every year. But uh, these come at a time of the year when our focus is on so many things. And the last thing we want to think about is... uh, the end of the world, which is where all of these readings are taking us. Although. (laughs) Uh, And since it is uh, 2020, as we record this, it is uh, maybe uh, appropriate that uh, these uh, end of the readings take on a little bit extra relevance, emphasis this particular year. Gospel reading. For the 23rd Sunday after Trinity, Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Vicar, take it away. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then. What you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. There we have it, our gospel reading for the 23rd Sunday after Trinity, Matthew 22, 15 to 22. I should give a little bit of a disclaimer here. Uh, As we record this particular devotion, people all around the country are casting their votes president, house, senate, local races, um, amendments, uh, especially regarding gambling here in Nebraska. It's election day as we record this. And when you hear this, 
you will know, I hope, you will know how all of these elections turned out, especially the, uh, the one that we've been hearing about now for four years, the election for president. And um, you may think, well, you should have waited a day, at least that way you would have known something before you recorded this uh, devotion. And I would say, oh, contraire, because God's word is God's word, no matter who the president is. God's word is God's word, no matter how the election turns out. This particular part of God's word, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, will guide us and shape us in any and every political situation, climate, victory, loss, whatever. Pastor, uh, do, you, do you agree with what I just said there? Yeah, I, I think uh, we need to remember very clearly that our main citizenship is not here on earth, but rather in heaven. Uh, we're here. We need to participate in the system and speak out uh, in defense of Christian values and, uh, and things like that. And yet at the same time, uh, we put not our trust in the princes, whoever is elected, whoever is our president or senator or, or whatever. Uh, our, our ultimate faith and trust is in Christ, who will take us out of this world one way or another another and into the kingdom that has no end, that there's peace and comfort and joy forever in. When we think about the uh, political climate in our world today, it's easy to think of things with regard to red or blue, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, red state, blue state, pro-life, pro-choice. I mean, all these different divisions that we have. And God's Word gives us everything we need to know with regard to this. We sometimes act like uh, no people have ever had political questions or turmoils or worry or fear. And um, uh, people all across the country are participating in a free election. I would, I would just guess, Pastor Moline is the historian, I would just guess that probably 98% of history has been people who could not participate in a full and free election for their leaders. You think, you think that's anywhere close? I think it's probably higher than that. Um, <laughs> okay, that know. makes my point as well. Um, I mean, we could say, oh yeah, the Athenians... Um, in ancient Greece had a democracy, but you still had to be a particular rank within society to vote. Uh, and there was also limitations on how many people could vote. And so the first people to show up at the, uh, the town council meetings um, were able to vote, but not everybody. And so the thing we have here in our current country uh, and the current state of affairs is unique among history. And uh, it is a great blessing to us, the freedoms that we have. Uh, that have been enshrined in the Constitution and given to us. Uh, we need to uphold that as important. And yet, again, to drive home the point I made earlier, our citizenship ultimately is of God's kingdom. And uh, we trust not the sinful men, whoever they are, that are above us. We pray for them. We hope they make wise decisions. We're participating in the political process. And yet, uh, we know that Christ is our true Lord and Master. Politically speaking, Election Day is the great equalizer. The millionaire has the same number of votes as the homeless beggar. The movie star has the same number of votes as the homemaker. 
the uh, president or speaker of the house has the same number of votes as the head of the local PTA or neighborhood association. It is the great equalizer. And I think that teaches us a lot because God's word teaches us with regard to law and gospel, the great equalizer there as well. And so with those thoughts in mind, let's dig into Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Okay, so pastor, we have the Pharisees and the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians. Can you, can you help, help us understand who it is that is plotting and scheming against Jesus? I think we're probably fairly familiar with the idea of the, the group uh, of Pharisees. Those are the uh, political or the, uh, the theological legalists. They are not in Jerusalem, generally speaking. That's where the Sadducees are, but they are uh, in all the towns and villages of Israel. Uh, they are connected to synagogues and they get into the detail of what the laws are, but they are a very common and probably the biggest theological political group uh, in Israel. The Herodians maybe we're not quite as familiar with. We have an idea of who Herod the Great is, uh, and even Herod, uh, his son, who puts Jesus, sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate to be put to death. The Herodians would be the political group uh, that supported him. Now, Herod uh, while he builds the temple in Jerusalem and tries to portray himself as a Jew, he's not. He's an Idumean, uh, which is the Roman version of what the Edomites would have been. And so Herod is descended not from Jacob, but from Esau. And um, additionally then, uh, he is not necessarily Jewish in his faith. In fact, Herod built three temples in Israel during his lifetime. There's the famous one in Jerusalem, but he also uh, built a temple to Pan in Caesarea Philippi, uh, and uh, I can't remember where the third temple is as well, but uh, uh, he's equal opportunity because he sees these temples that he builds as a means to an end, politically speaking, to get people to like him. And he is not only ruling over Jewish people, he's also ruling over the pagan people that populate the region also. And so Herodians, in that sense, first off, they're not Jewish. Um, they are descended from Edom, uh, and they are equal opportunity theologically, but their main thing is politics. And that's where uh, this is great for the Pharisees because they're going to ask him a question that has to do with politics. And they want him to answer a particular way so that they can say, look, Jesus is just like these Romans and these Edomites that are ruling over us. Um, or, or if he answers a different way, then the Herodians will accuse him. And again, it's a the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of situation. I... I I don't think we think about this enough, and it's not the right time of the year to bring it up, but uh, it always is interesting to me when Jesus is on trial, Jesus is the descendant of Jacob, and he is supposed to be, you know, he's the king of the Jews, and he's on trial in front of a descendant of Esau, uh, Herod, uh, who gave up his birthright and yet, from a worldly perspective, is the king, uh, according to the Roman point of view, in the area. Politics make for strange bedfellows, and they have uh, 
plotted together, coerced together. They're working together to take down Jesus. This happens a lot in uh, all around the world, but this happens a lot in politics. Uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yep. There we go. Okay. So, Vicar, in verse 16, what what flattery do they bring to Jesus uh, trying to butter him up or soften him up? They're saying that, you know, you're a teacher. You're, you're well-known among the people. We know that what you say is true, and you're faithful to God's word, and you don't care about anybody's opinions. You know, you speak forthrightly. No now, now with, without thinking about their motives, is what they say in verse 16 of Matthew 22 accurate or not? I mean, it is. It is accurate, putting aside their motives. It's 100% accurate. He is a great teacher. He knows that he is, tr- uh, he is true. He teaches God's word faithfully, and he does not care about anyone's opinion. He is not swayed by appearances. So, Pastor, before we go to break, they speak the truth to Jesus, but Jesus knows their hypocrisy. Now, Jesus knows all things. What hypocrisy is he talking about? Well, they're buttering him up so that... Um Maybe he won't suspect their trickery in the sense that they're really trying to get him to answer in a way that will either make the Jewish people angry or the Herodians angry, uh, so that either way he answers, there's one group who's mad at him. And and to do that, you always butter him up first. And you see this in modern politics, since we talked about it, right? Um, you always butter up the people before you hammer them down. And uh, what better way to try to trick Jesus than a question about taxes. Uh, You like to pay taxes? Do you like your tax rate? Ha ha ha, they didn't either. We'll examine that more closely when we come back. Don't change that dial. Proclaiming the one. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. See, I got it right the second time around. See, the problem is, is we have Vicar Golden in that introduction. And Vicar Golden is a faithful former vicar who talks to me once a week, once every 10 days. And so he's just like always on my mind, you know, like a, a Willie Nelson song. But uh, so golden, uh, golden on your mind instead of Georgia. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, but uh, here we are. We're looking at the readings for the 23rd Sunday after Trinity. And um, we have in our first part, we, we looked at the intro here. We have the Pharisees and their minions, the Herodians. They're plotting and scheming politically against Jesus. They want him to say or do something that would lessen his popularity because the Pharisees and the Herodians are all about being popular. And uh, they, don't, they don't care about the Electoral College. They just want the popular vote. And so um, uh, they ask Jesus, first they butter him up and say a bunch of stuff that's true, but they, uh, 
do it in a crafty way. And then in verse 17 of Matthew 22, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Pastor, why is this a trick slash controversial question? It's a trick controversial question because the Jewish people believe that the Romans are um, invaders, are people who have come in here wrongly to subdue the Jews and to hold them underfoot, and so they don't like them. On the other hand, you have the Herodians who, uh, I don't know if this is well known or not, but the way that the Herodians came into power was uh, during the Roman Civil War between Augustus Caesar and Marcus Antony. Um, and actually, uh, Herod the Great originally was on the losing side. He fought on the side of Mark Antony uh, against Octavian. And when Mark Antony lost um, at the uh, the great naval battle and came down to Egypt and um, uh, was was killed, uh, killed himself, um, Herod the Great traded sides and went begging to Octavian, and Octavian um, used his money and gave it, uh, you know, uh, gave him power and authority to be the king of the Jews um, in the land of Israel. And so it's kind of just an interesting thing in that way that these two different groups um, don't get along, and and, uh, that's just a reality of the time. So if the answer is that, uh, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. The Herodians, by being uh, friends with the Caesars, have no choice but to put Jesus under arrest for undermining the power of the emperor. And at the same time, uh, if he says you should pay taxes, then the Jewish people will be angry at him because um, they don't like the way that the Romans are uh, holding their land hostage in a sense. Okay, so they have plotted and schemed, and they have Jesus, they believe in a way so that no matter how he answers, he's going to lose. No matter how he answers, he's going to cut the knees out from under himself and lose his popularity one way or the other. He's either going to lose the popularity of the people, or he's going to end up in jail and uh, for insurrection and prove that uh, he's not God's son because he's breaking the law. Which, which is then also the same thing they kind of use when they... Uh, bring him before Pontius Pilate later on, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is our king. Well, there's no king but Caesar. So it's the same It's the same uh, game that they're playing. Vicar, um, Jesus in verse uh, 18, but Jesus aware of their malice. Now, the, you, you already said before that everything that the, they said was true, and they asked a legitimate question. How did Jesus know that their hearts were full of malice? Well, from my purely human perspective, if, you know, people have been trying to trip you up previously, you might catch on to their game a little quicker as it goes on. But Jesus is God. He knows their hearts. The Gospels say that over and over again. He perceived what they were saying. He knew their hearts. He knows not only that they're just trying to trip him up, but he knows that they are full of malice, that they want to get this Jesus guy out of the way. Uh, Jesus knows all things because Jesus is God. And uh, uh, this is definitely an advantage Jesus has. We can only go by what people say or 
assume, and when we assume, sometimes we assume correctly, sometimes we assume incorrectly. Jesus is speaking the truth. Their hearts are full of malice. Uh, He's not going to play their game. He says, bring me the coin. They brought to him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Pastor, just briefly, was that common that the head of the political leader, whatever country the coin was issued from, um, some famous person in politics would be on the money? Yeah, it's it's one hundred percent common. Uh, begins especially with uh, Augustus Caesar Octavian after that war I talked about earlier, because it's a way that you get your image into the hands of everybody to put you above them to let them know who's boss. Look. Uh, you can have this money, and I'm the one who made sure it was created, and therefore you owe your allegiance to me. Um, the same thing there would be in the center of cities, um, you know, images, statues. In fact, some of the uh, statues we have of like Augustus and uh, Tiberius still are in existence, and they're all created. It's 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 maybe this is the way to say it. You remember when President Obama was running for office and there was the famous picture of his face that was red and blue and white? Um, yes. Uh, that's a, the same sort of thing that putting these pictures of the emperors on the coins is doing. It's getting everybody out there to see and know who he is and, and make him well known. Uh, look in your purse, your billfold, uh, your pocket. All of your money has some political face on it. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. You may not know who Alexander Hamilton or Ulysses S. Grant is, but trust me, they're they're a politician in some way, shape, or form from our past. If you bring those bills to us, we can help you figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now the, the clincher. Uh, obviously Caesar's pictures on the coin. Jesus said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Pastor, um, the two kingdoms theology is a very, very important part of what we believe, teach, and confess as confessional Lutheran Christians. This two kingdom theology is... uh, oftentimes misunderstood, mischaracterized, and this two-kingdom theology is sorely lacking in our country today, uh, much less uh, in Lutheranism in other parts of the world. Can you give us, in a couple of minutes or so, can you give us a brief understanding of the two kingdoms theology that flows out of this particular verse, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Yeah, uh, well, I'll do my best anyways. Uh, We have to understand to begin with that in both realms, both kingdoms, God is ultimately the boss who's in charge. And yet God uh, works in different ways, both in the civil government as well as in the church government, if we're going to use the word government. So those are the two kingdoms, civil government and church. Okay. Right. And I use the word church government there just so we can have that same comparison across the board. Okay. The civil government, uh, God 
institutes and uses to punish wickedness and to allow for the protection of the average person. And so that's why the civil government uh, has things like the army and the police uh, to arrest those who break the rules and the laws, who hurt and harm society in general. Uh, so that And the ability to generate taxes to pay for those things. To pay things. for those things, correct. And so that's, that's the civil government. And ultimately, God is working in that. Is he not the one who said, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, those things? And he's using civil government to enforce that uh, upon us to the best of sinful ability and how does god work then in his other realm in the realm of the church well that's the realm i don't then. pay taxes to the church i don't call the the church elders if somebody's breaking into my house what's going on there well so that's uh, god has also instituted the church then to uh, bring his word to people so that they might uh, realize that their sins are forgiven. First off, I suppose that they are sinners and that those sins are forgiven and that there is a world that is to come uh, which will supplant the world we live in now. Um, and uh, the the church government's job is to preach the word and administer the sacraments to bring Christians into that kingdom that is to come. Uh, first here, in this world in faith, and then in the world to come as we uh, leave this world uh, in complete and total reality. Uh, I don't know, that's probably not the right way to say it, but we'll really truly experience it um, one day. And so both of these rules and governments exist and therefore our benefit, and yet they operate in different ways and um, they kind of coexist among each other. And as long as we're in the sinful world, we're in both of them. Um, but when we die or Christ returns, we'll be only in God's heavenly kingdom. So God has established not only the church so that we know our sins are forgiven, but he has established the civil realm and the civil government so that our bodies, our souls, our lives, our property, our livelihood is protected. The, the, this is God working in both realms, in both kingdoms, but these kingdoms, while they certainly overlap at some times, these kingdoms are separate and distinct, and we need to remember this as we live our lives. If, um, if someone is arrested for robbing the bank, they don't ask the judge for the forgiveness of sins. They go to their pastor for the forgiveness of sins. The judge, in order to protect people's property and livelihoods, the judge passes judgment on how long this person is going to be incarcerated. Correct. That doesn't mean one is better than the other. They have two completely different reasons for existing. One is a more temporal role. One is a more eternal role. Is that is that a fair summation of what we're talking about, Pastor? I mean, I think if we put it in the simplest terms, yeah, and, and that's the challenge, right, is that it does get more complicated than that. But in the very simplest, easiest to understand way, that's the truth. What about when the civil role oversteps its bounds and tells people that uh, they can't do something that is clearly taught in God's Word, or they must do something that is clearly forbidden in God's word. Well, uh, Scripture teaches us about that as well. It says we must obey God rather than men or uh, in opposition to men. And so uh, we have to remember one of these kingdoms lasts forever and the other one has an end. Um, and the one that we should care primarily about is the one that has no end, that is eternal. So if this is the first time that you have ever heard the terminology 
uh, two kingdoms or two realms. Uh, you need to get to your Lutheran pastor as quickly as possible, sit down with him, and he will be more than happy to take you much, much deeper into this topic than we're able to cover right here. But rest assured, this section from Matthew 22 is a key foundational passage with regard to two kingdoms theology, as is Romans 13. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. When we come back, we'll look at Proverbs chapter 8. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you for tuning in. We're looking at the readings for the 23rd Sunday after Trinity. We, in our first two segments, we looked at our gospel reading, Matthew 22, 15 to 22, a very, very important passage with regard to the two kingdoms theology that is clearly taught in God's word. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh, Pastor, are you familiar with the movie Sergeant York? I am, but it's been a long time since Ga- I've seen it. Gary Cooper, it's the, uh, the the story of World War One hero, Sergeant York. Gary Cooper plays the uh, role magnificently. And this Bible passage from Matthew 22 uh, plays a major, major role in the movie because uh, Sergeant York he's did not want to pacifist, fight. pacifist, right? But he's he a captures pac- a whole bunch of Germans. He's a pacifist after a very dramatic conversion experience, and uh, he does not want to serve in the military. He believes it's a sin. And based on this section of scripture from Matthew 22, is uh, convinced that he can serve his country. He does so admirably and is uh, one of the most decorated military people in the history of the United States. If you don't know that movie, uh, check it out. It is a a wonderful, wholesome movie. Gary Cooper, Walter Brennan, June Lockhart. It's uh, it's awesome. Uh, I think it's black and white. Joanne Leslie is uh, the love interest there, and it's a true story. That's what makes it so cool. Vicar, we want to look at our uh, Old Testament reading, Proverbs 8, 11 to 22. Take it away, please. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, 
the first of his acts of old. Okay, Proverbs 8, 11 to 22. Now, Pastor, um, wisdom is doing the talking here. I, me, we, I, wisdom is doing the talking. I, wisdom, do this and do this. I, I, I have insight. I have strength. I love those. My fruit. Okay, wisdom is doing the talking. As I listen to Vicar read these words, when I closed my eyes, it sure sounded like every word that wisdom is speaking, Jesus speaks. Am I trying am I reading something into the text? Am I barking up the wrong tree? Am I on the right path? Can you can you help me out here with what's going on in Proverbs chapter eight? Well, um, in a sense, wisdom is Jesus, and Jesus is wisdom, um, and they they kind of are the same entity in a way. And it's even to take it a step further, God Himself is wisdom, and so Christ is wisdom incarnate. Uh, and so we shouldn't see any trouble with these things um, sounding the same as the voice of Christ. I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm reminded of the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, thou wisdom from on high, who orderedst all things mightily. To us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Certainly the hymn writer believed that these passages, uh, especially the ones in Proverbs that talk about wisdom, were in some way, shape, or form, messianic passages talking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. Is that a is that a faithful verse in that song based on the kind of word that we're looking at here in Proverbs eight, Pastor? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I I love it when you uh, when you give me one of those kind of answers. All right. So wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Um, Pastor, we tend to think in terms of our stuff, our possessions, our money, our portfolio, our home, uh, extend that even more, our, our legacy that we leave after we die. And here, Proverbs 8 verse 11 says, wisdom is better than all of those things better than anything you can even desire. Bring that into focus for me, would you please? Well, uh, we worry about jewels and physical money and things like that because in our brains it makes sense that that's the way we're going to be able to take care of ourselves and our families. But that doesn't last forever. Um, the money and things that we have eventually run out or fall apart. Our houses uh, need to be repaired. Our 401k runs out of cash. Um, and at, ultimately, we die, right? And uh, Ecclesiastes is clear about that. The stuff that you have when you die will become that of your heirs, and they'll waste it and uh, burn it away in inappropriate uh, ways. And so it doesn't last forever. But wisdom, especially when we see wisdom as Christ personified, uh, or wisdom personified as Christ, that does last forever because that's the thing that gets us to eternity, to God's kingdom, to peace and comfort and joy, a world without end. 
I uh, I sometimes stumble when I get to verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Now, the only way that I'm familiar with that word prudence is uh, the shorthand of it. When somebody is a stick in the mud, when somebody is not, is not with it, uh, not woke, sometimes, uh, at least back in the 60s and 70s, they were called a prude. So, pastor, help me out. I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. What is this teaching us about Jesus? Well, I, I think the word prudence, that uh, the way we're defining it here would be uh, shrewdness or caution, circumspection, sagacity. In- innocence? Yeah, um, I, I think it wouldn't be innocence so much in the sense that you're being uh prudent because you know what things are going to happen. And so you're acting carefully to make sure things go the way that you wish them to do. Uh, so, so prudence is when you put your wisdom into action. Correct. And act in a certain way. And, and so that's not innocence because innocence would be, I don't know what's going okay, to happen. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And so uh, verse 13 is one that we don't have near as much problem with. Vicar, it says, the fear of the Lord, which we often define as faith. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. The fear of the Lord uh, in that uh, way that it is used so often in Psalms and Proverbs is shorthand for faith. The fear of the Lord, wisdom, faith, is hatred of evil. How does that work? Well, the Lord reveals himself in his word, and he tells us, you know, how we are to live, what he means for us to be as human beings, as Christians, to have faith in God and to seek to follow in his ways is to hate that which he declares as evil. To turn from sin is not to turn to virtue. To turn from sin is to turn to faith. Okay, so, Pastor, is there a problem with Christians hating? Because it says here, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Um, you know, I've, I've been taught, uh, you know, gosh, we had preschool here for more than three decades. Um, you know, I had more than one preschool mom come up to me when I would read Bible passages like this and say, oh, no, hate is a four-letter word. We don't use that word hate in our household. Uh, please, please refrain from doing that. Uh, how, how is a Christian supposed to understand that and put that into practice? Well, I mean, it's probably good for a parent to say that to their kids, not to hate, because we want to teach them the proper things to hate. The things we hate are those things that are opposed to God and his word. So let's take a really clear, easy example. Is it better to love Satan or to hate Satan? Is it better to love the things that Satan tells you or to hate the things Satan tells you? Uh, I mean, what's the answer to that question? We should hate Satan because he's opposed to God. Yes. We should hate his word because it's opposed to God's word. And so the hate goes to the proper things, and the only way that can happen is if we understand what God's Word says and what God loves and what God does not love. 
And when we understand that, we hate the things that he hates and we love the things that he loves. Now, we have to be very, very, very careful with that because our sinful nature always gets in the way and tries to twist that and apply our hate in the improper places, you know, like um, the senior pastor hates his associate pastor or something like that, or I'm just joking here. Um, but when that happens, then we're misusing God's word, we're denying God's word, and uh, that's the real issue with our hate being applied to the wrong thing. Can we say that God hates sin so much, he hates evil so much, that he poured out all of his wrath and hatred against sin and evil on his own dear son on Calvary's cross? I think we can say that, and we need to make sure we are clear then, when God did that, all the sin that we have committed was on Christ's shoulders. He was paying the price for it. And so, in that sense, Jesus is the greatest sinner the world has ever seen, not with his own sin, but with ours. And uh, that, uh, when you get into that hate talk, just think a Good Friday, and that'll help uh, bring it in. Um, I wish we had more time to spend on this particular text, but uh, verse 15 really connects us well into our gospel reading from Matthew 22. By me, by wisdom, by Christ, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. Verse 16, by me, princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. Pastor, with about 30 seconds left before break, how does that connect us to that two kingdoms theology? Well, again, this is like we said about the kingdom of the world, um, that technically both kingdoms fall under Christ's authority. And so um, our rulers rule only with the authority of God um, to punish sin and things like that. That doesn't mean that they do everything perfectly or that they're holy in themselves. They're not. They're sinful people. But their authority to punish sin, like murder and theft, comes from God. And so by God's gracious allowance, they come into their position of authority. And we need to be reminded of that even if we don't like who our political leaders are. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at our epistle reading, Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Don't change that dial. Proclaiming the one. You are listening to KNNA LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Bless the Lord, my soul. We pray that God would bless us individually, bless us as a church, and bless us as a society as well. I think of that uh, responsive prayer liturgy that we use. Uh, Lord, keep this nation under your care and guide us in the way of justice and truth. That, uh, that prayer is appropriate any day for a citizen and most of you that are listening to this are citizens of the United States. I know we have a few listeners from outside of uh, the United States of America, but uh, uh, wherever you are, if you're a citizen of a country, 
that uh, that prayer is a faithful one for a Christian. And we're going to continue this uh, line of thinking and uh, a very important aspect of this two kingdoms theology that is clearly taught in God's word is uh, before us in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians three seventeen to 21, Vicar. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There you have it, Philippians 3. Uh, the, the last uh, words of our text might be pretty familiar. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subdue all things unto himself. I know those words very well, Pastor. I have those words memorized. When does the pastor speak those words uh, for a member of his flock? Um, They speak them, uh, I just drew a blank, when they're dying, uh, when they're, or I just drew a blank here. (laughs) Okay, well, they're, they're part of the commendation for the dying, but what I was specifically referring to is the committal service. Yes, there we go. And we are at the graveside. That's the word I was, was on the tip of my tongue that I couldn't come up with. We are at the graveside. We have we have heard God's word. We have heard the prayers. Uh, if there wasn't a service at church, you've heard a brief sermon, maybe even sung a hymn. And now we're about done. Uh, we commit the body to God's acre uh, and to its resting place. And the casket is about to be lowered into the hole, lowered into the grave. And the pastor stands over the casket, makes the sign of the cross, and a part of the uh, liturgical saying uh, ends with this passage from Philippians chapter 3. By the power that enables him to subdue or subject all things to himself. Why, Pastor, are these words spoken at that particular time? What does God's power have to do with the dead body of our loved one being lowered into the grave? Well, it goes back to the resurrection of Jesus himself, where by the glory of God, Christ raises from the dead to live and reign for all eternity, the first fruits of all those that sleep. And so the promise from God is that just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, so too shall the person we're putting in the ground be raised from the dead as well. And in the midst of the toil and tribulation that goes on in this world, God's Word teaches us that we are to fix our eyes on things eternal. Uh, we, we live in this world. We need to participate in all of the activities and things. We, yeah, we work. We earn a paycheck. We pay our taxes. We, uh, we eat. We drink. We, uh, we take our kids to church. We visit our uh, family and friends. We do all these things. That's the world that we live in. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's difficult. 
With regard to politics, sometimes we are consumed with the political nature of things, especially if the political society nature of things is attacking us for who we are. And that's what's going on in the first part of our text here in Philippians chapter 3. The bottom line is God is God no matter who sits on the throne. God is God no matter who wins the election. God is God, no matter whether you live in a blue state or a red state. God is God, and his word is true. And Paul is reminding us here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And by the power of God's word, our bodies, when they die, and they will, no matter what you do to try to prevent it, our bodies, when they die, Rest in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of all flesh on the last day. And this power is God's power that enables him to subdue all things unto himself. Pastor? I think the uh, citizenship comment is really important here as well. We have to understand who it is that's living in the city of Philippi at this time. Uh, Philippi had been... Um, you know, 150 years before this, 100 years before this, the site of the major battle between Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. Um, And um, 200,000 people were killed in a a battle there, Um, you know, not long before Paul writes these words. And then on top of it, um, the winner had to find places to put their soldiers, to give them land and possessions and a place to live, a home, uh, to subdue them so that they could establish their governmental rule. And so one of the places that uh, the soldiers were placed was here in the city of Philippi. Because you wanted your people uh, located there where the enemy formerly had had a stronghold. And so all these citizens of this uh, Philippi are people loyal to Julius Caesar who are descended from the people who fought in the battle right outside their door. And they're Romans through and through who are... um, Uh, you know, subjugating this area of Greece. And Paul says, no, your citizenship actually is something bigger and better than you can even imagine. It is in heaven, and it is eternal, and Christ will raise your body just like the hundreds of thousands of bodies buried outside of town on the last day. And I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, Help us out. I mean, I appreciate all the historical background here. It's very, very, very helpful. Um, When uh, when Paul says, uh, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. Are these people who were true believers who have fallen from the faith, maybe gotten caught up with all of this Caesar worship and Rome uh, stuff uh, rather than the word of God? Well, I, th- I think that the context again tells us these are the people who are uh, consumed by the political world rather than the theological world uh, where we have to understand the way things worked, right? So their end is destruction, and we saw that at Philippi with the losing army being 
basically obliterated. Uh, two 250,000 people armies met, and only one of them survived. So they're destru- destroyed. Their god is their belly. The way that um, Roman emperors maintained their position of authority was they handed out free bread uh, to as many people as possible. And you especially did that at places like Philippi, where veterans, former soldiers, are settled because you don't want those veterans to suddenly rise up and reform as an army and choose someone else to be the next emperor in your place. Uh, And so we're seeing that again fulfilled in them. They glory in their shame uh, in the world with their mind set on earthly power, earthly things, earthly authority. And Paul saying, no, stop that. Again, your citizenship is in heaven. How did these people vote for the uh, new emperor? How, uh, where did they cast their ballot? Uh, did they have political parties like we do today? How did that work, Pastor? Well, they did have political parties, and in a sense, they do kind of vote, especially if you're a veteran or a soldier. The way it worked was is you uh, got your guys together, and you killed the old one, and you picked a new one, and you said, you're going to become the emperor, and if you don't want us to kill you like the last guy, you're going to give us a bunch of money. Okay, so um, in comparison, you know, when we think about the activities that were happening with the Senate and people of Rome— and, uh, you know, like the warm welcome from a cold knife that, uh, <laughs> that Caesar received. Um, things in our country, by comparison, are about a million times better. Is that fair? Very much so, especially it's not going to be long after Paul writes these words that um, we're going to have, uh, you know, we have a few years where we have good emperors that are strung together, but most of the time, uh, emperors, their lives end in assassination. In fact, way over half of the emperors are killed. So um, just off the top of my head, you do have Julius Caesar, who's assassinated in the Senate. You have uh, Caligula, who's assassinated. Who's the guy who gets his hands chopped off? Is that Cicero? It might, yes. Cicero gets his hands chopped yep. off. He's not an emperor, though. No, but he, uh, but he, he was a wise. Julius Caesar, and that he got the punishment for it. Um, you have Caligula that's uh, assassinated. Claudius is killed by his wife. Nero is assassinated. Um, you have um, Diocletian who's assassinated. I mean, so we're maybe 10 emperors in, and we're like 60% are assassinated. Let's give thanks that we live in the time that we live in. Let's give thanks that we live in the country where we have so many freedoms, and especially the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship. Are there sometimes some difficulties, sometimes some uh, tense times with regard to elections or health mandates? Of course. But at the same time, by comparison, we have so very, very much to be thankful for. This two kingdoms theology helps us sort it out. And remember, your true citizenship is in heaven, earned by the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. Vicar, would you bring things to a close today by praying the collect for the 23rd Sunday after Trinity? Let us pray. O Lord, absolve your people from their offenses, that from the bonds of our sins, which by reason of our frailty we have brought upon ourselves, we may be delivered by your bountiful goodness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. 
Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. Sunday morning, when you get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, uh, pray for your country and your political leaders, especially pray for your pastors, and most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ, fellow citizens of heaven. We'll see you again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ. 